Sure, thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming out tonight uh, to hear, to talk about this topic of finding meaning at work. Um, the famous author Mark Twain said, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. Now, some might think that, some might act like that, but what are we to make of work? Is it a necessary evil to be avoided? Is work meaningless? Well, tonight I'm going to, give us, to get us thinking in a couple of different ways about uh, how we can find meaning in our work and so that we can understand that work is actually not a necessary evil to be avoided. Sorry, excuse me. <coughs> um, um, but as we, as we begin, I think the first thing to think about is well, what do we even mean by meaning? What does it mean to mean? What is the meaning of meaning? It's just sounding like a yes, Prime Minister sort of episode, isn't it? Yeah, so, um, sorry if you're not familiar with that. Um, it would be, <coughs> I thought that, yeah, anyway. Um, now, Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, gives two overlapping senses of what it means. Sorry, could, <coughs> is it possible to get a glass of water or something? Yeah, thanks, sorry. <coughs> There's all this um, pollen in the air, I think. Um, so Tim Keller in his book, um, Making Sense of God, gives two overlapping senses of what it means to mean. He's speaking, he's speaking more about sort of the meaning of life, but I think these apply particularly when we're thinking about uh, understanding what meaning applies to our work. The first has to do with purpose. Something has meaning if there is an intention behind it. So did you mean to bake a cake? Did you mean to say those particular words? Did you mean to come here tonight? Well, I, I hope that you have, and you haven't just aimlessly wandered in here. So the first one is to do with purpose. The second has to do with significance. Something has meaning if it points to something beyond itself. Uh, if it signifies or if it acts as a sign pointing to something beyond itself. So Keller then con concludes <coughs> sorry, that to have meaningful life is to have an overall purpose for living and the assurance that you are making a difference by serving some good beyond yourself. Now, even uh, atheist... Oh, this, sorry, this will be... Oh, thank you. That's, oh, I don't think I'll need all that, but um, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, we'll see. You never know. Uh, oh, thanks. Just in case. Yes, that's right. I think that's a lot better. Right. So even um so so meaning is the secret of um so Keller says meaning uh, the to have meaning for life is to have an overall purpose for living and an assurance that you are making a difference and serving a good beyond yourself. Now even atheist Daniel Dennett in somewhat agrees when he speaks about the secret to happiness. He says the secret to happiness is to find something bigger than you and devote your life to it. Now I think Dennett would then argue that this would actually lead you to a happy and meaningful life. Now, what I find really interesting about Dennett's quote, because even though he's an atheist, I think his idea actually lends itself more readily to theism than to atheism, because in atheism there is nothing personal which is bigger than us. Um, but in a Christian theism, we actually do believe that there is something personal bigger than us, which you would argue um, is obviously Jesus and the gospel and God himself. So, what does it then mean to have meaningful work? Work that has a purpose and a significance that goes beyond us by serving some good beyond ourselves. So we're going to think about, I've got 
four essential points. So uh, I studied in Anglican College, um, but I'm in the Presbyterian Church, so we're actually not going to have three points. We have four points tonight. Uh, four points, although the first one is very short, and I don't want you to think that the other points are going to be equally as short. Um, so I don't want to kind of get you to think, oh, wow, I've done the first point pretty fast. Now we're just going to move on. Um, the first point is that we've got four points about uh, thinking about different elements of meaning in our work. Um, the first one, the most first and most foundational and pragmatic reason, uh, the most uh, meaningful work or doing paid work is ultimately just sorry is to just earn money and provide for oneself and not to be a burden for others. So 1 Thessalonians 4:11 says, "Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you." so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you may, will not be dependent on anybody. similar idea is found in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which says, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So I think there's a, this demonstrates, as you can see, this, this a key meaning to our work is to provide, certainly for our paid work, and this is particularly in this context, for paid work or labour, is uh, to provide materially, to survive, to eat. Uh, and for most of human history, I think if we were to run a seminar on the meaning of work, then the seminar would probably end here. It'd be a very short evening. Most people would just accept the fact that, well, work, of course, is to survive and to eat. You work to earn an income, to make food, to eat, to survive. And this is the most basic function uh, and meaning of work. Yet, as we as a society have probably, have in some ways, have uh, climbed... Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've, as, a, as a general society, we've gone beyond a, a simple survival society, although the, this is, like I, said, as I said, the foundational meaning of work. And hence, the work for the modern world, for the average worker in Melbourne, serves uh, different and more wide-ranging functions. So as a culture, we now live for more than just survival, and I think that this also affects our view uh, and understanding of work. We're all actually, like as we climb Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are looking for something, a greater purpose and significance to our work. And so what is it? Where, where can we find it? And hence, we move on to the, my second point. As I said, the first point was quite short. So the second point is going to be a bit longer. So what, as we begin to think about meaningful work and the purpose of our work, I think one, we, one thing we often fail to understand is what is my work for? What is the purpose of my work? As you're, as you're thinking about your jobs, and we've already heard from uh, one, one, one worker tonight, how would you answer the question, what is my work for? Now, you may, or you probably may not, hopefully you don't remember, but you might, there was a film in the 1980s called, um, 1990s called Pretty Woman, uh, with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. Now, maybe I'm showing my age, or perhaps the kind of movies that I watched as a teenager. Now, not that I'm, I'm not trying to endorse or condone uh, Pretty Woman, or encourage you to watch it if you haven't watched it, but anyway, there is a scene in this particular film where Richard Gere's character, Edward Lewis, was a rich and ruthless businessman who bought and sold businesses and sold them off piece by piece. And he makes a statement which can potentially get to the heart of work. He says to his colleague, we don't build anything, Phil. We don't make anything. And Phil, his, his colleague's response was, we make money, Edward. We make money. So is this how we view work? At the purpose of my work simply is a selfish, greedy quest for money without any benefit for the wider society? When we answer what our work is for, 
what is the perp- my, what the purpose of my work is, then I think we can distill and we start to begin to understand meaning for my work. And Ecclesiastes chapter 2 in the Bible, so if you've got a Bible there, if you want to flip it open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 2 gives some, some examples of where we cannot find meaning in our work. So it's Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11, which I'll just give you a second just to get. Now this passage outlines and then critiques several of the motivations that are commonly given to work in our world today. Ecclesiastes, I think, is a profound book uh, that is only more relevant today. I think it has never been more relevant today than our current age. But anyway, so Ecclesiastes said the teacher uh, is sharing about his observations as he reflects on the world. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to grow groves to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women, singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. And yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained for all, nothing was gained under the sun. Now this passage gives us, I think, four key motivations or, that we often ascribe or often given to work in our world. So these motivations are achievements, reputation, consumption, and fulfillment. <laughs> we work to achieve, we work to gain a reputation, we work in order to consume, and we work to become fulfilled. And often people, I think in our society, in our world, if you ask your colleagues, people that you work with, I'm sure that they would possibly give you, what, why do you do what you do? What's your purpose of what you do? In the end, I think one of those answers will come up. And so what does the teacher here in Ecclesiastes make of these? Well, they all ultimately fail. Now, a Achievements, all these things are in some, in some respects are all good in their own right, um, but they're not the primary focus of work. So, for example, achievements, they're satisfying and enjoyable, but if we make them the primary focus of our work, then we'll find it ultimately empty and meaningless. Look at verse 4 there. The teacher's worked at many things, great projects, reservoirs, farming, gardens, parks. He's been a, a civil engineer, a farmer, an entrepreneur, a businessman, a gardener, all at the same time. He's achieved a lot, possibly won some Employee of the Year awards, um, some <laughs> government awards, etc. But how does he describe what he's, how does he, he's achieved a lot, yet he describes his achievements in the end there as what? As fleeting, like chasing the wind, like sand running through your fingers. 
There's a story of returning Roman generals uh, who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. A slave stood behind them, whispering in their ears, all glory is fleeting, all glory is fleeting. Now, here's a, here's a question for you. Have any of you heard of uh, Hayden Bunton, Dick Reynolds, Bob Skilton, or Ian Stewart? <laughs> One person? You've heard of all four? Yeah, okay. Does anybody else know? What are they famous for? How many times? <laughs> you tell me. Sorry. <laughs> Hayden Bunton. Dick Reynolds. I'll, the answer, you're very, very, very close. You're the closest. I've done this, I've, said, I've used this several times. You're the first person in three times to have got anywhere near the answer. Um, they're the only four Australian rules players to have won the Brownlow medal three times. That's the, the highest honour in Australian rules football. So these guys are legends, pinnacles of the game, and most of you, only one person, had any idea who they were. In fact, some historians and observers of Australian rules football regard Hayden Bunton as the greatest of all time. And, well, you knew who he played for Fitzroy. Um, you couldn't name how many times he won the ground lane. Great achievements are fleeting. Dusty Martin has won the Brownlow. He's going to be one of the all-time greats. 60 years' time, a group like this, there'll be one... not sure what word to use. Um, one enthusiast, perhaps, <laughs> or someone who, who, who may remember who Dusty Martin was, but probably never ever saw him play. Achievements are satisfying and enjoyable, but this isn't the primary focus of our work. If we make achievements and these things the focus of our work, we'll find it ultimately empty and meaningless as the teacher laments. And the teacher goes on, he says, to, to show that other motivations for our work, reputation, consumption and fulfilment, like achievements, are fleeting and ultimately meaningless. So look in verse 9, he says, he had a reputation. I became greater than, by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In verse 10, he consumed. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. And in verse 10, he was fulfilled. My heart took delight in all my work. Sounds like the kind of ideal job, doesn't it? Fulfilling work, which enables you to do what you like and everyone respects me. Yet having all this, look how he concludes in verse 11. This was, everything was all meaningless, enigmatic. It was like vapor. It was like chasing the wind. Achievements, reputation, fulfillment and consumption are all fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow like sand running through our fingers. And if we make these things the, the focus and the purpose, the meaning of our work, it will ultimately be frustrating. Chasing after the wind and it will not satisfy us. So what then is a biblical motivation for my work? What is my purpose in working if it can't be these things? How can I find meaning in my work? Well, there's one common thread between those four uh, um, meanings which, were, which the author here reflects on. And the common thread is that they're all selfish, that they're all ultimately about ourselves and what I want to do. They all fail to go beyond myself. And it's hard to find meaning beyond ourselves because we are ultimately finite. Yet the biblical view, I think, of work, or the, the, the view that, that the Bible paints is actually quite different. 
I think the Bible's view of the purpose of our work is that it's an expression of loving our neighbour. So in Mark chapter 12, one of the great, the great commands that Jesus um, was, uh, was asked about and shared, the two great commands, Mark 12, 30, 28 to 31. <coughs> Mark 12, 28 says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. This is Mark 12, 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Our work maintains and builds society. Our work directly affects the harmony and order of the wider community. Uh, we've just heard about someone who works helping with childcare, <laughs> and that, in some ways, builds a community and the way that looking after children, etc., and the way that that, that happens. Um, but this means that work, which is a broader concept than just paid work, uh, all work is valuable, and because not just because I'm being paid, because but because work is valuable because it's an expression of loving others. Everyone's work affects and benefits everybody else. Work becomes an expression of love and of service. So consider just coming here tonight. You've put on clothes that you didn't make. You've driven in a vehicle that you didn't construct or design. You've parked in a car park that you didn't lay. You've walked through a, a door that you didn't <laughs> erect. You've sat down in a chair that someone, that someone has placed in that space and you're listening to a talk that you didn't write. Um, and I hope that you'll stay awake as well. Um, so, but, well, the, the iPhone, for example, someone's work in developing and manufacturing and marketing this product enables us to uh, check our emails, update Instagram, play Candy Crush Saga, share photos of our dinner, and sometimes even make phone calls. But the crucial purpose of all these things, this work, is actually our work is an expression of loving others. It's a way of caring for other people. So I stumbled across an article once from the New York Times, which is the author Tony Schwartz compared spending time with managers of two large global companies. One encounter he described was a pure downer, dull and devoid of positive energy. Yet he described an eight-hour meeting with a group of Google executives as inspiring. Why the great difference? He says, well, the Googlers feel they're contributing to something meaningful and larger than themselves, and the other executives evinced no passion whatsoever for their work. So the difference was purpose. But listen to how Tony Schwartz described this purpose. He says, The most reliable source of purpose, I'm convinced, is being of service to others. Giving more than you take, which turns out not to just make most of us feel good, but also good about ourselves. In short, it's a powerful source of energy. So he goes on to say, if you're a teacher, a social worker, or a nurse, your work is intrinsically of service to others. But there are many ways to be of service. Over the years, I've been inspired by parking lot attendants, shoe shiners, elevator operators, TSA agents, and a smiling, upbeat clerk working in a department of motor vehicles. They'd found a way, whatever the intrinsic limitations of their jobs, to add value in the world and to make meaning one person at a time. As Marion Wright Edelman once put it, we must not, in trying to think about how we can make a big difference, Ignore the small daily differences we can make, which over time add up to bigger difference, the big differences we cannot often foresee. This is what 
secular writers are seeing is that the most reliable source of purpose is service to others. Seeking a cause beyond yourself. I think Jesus had it first. Love your neighbor. It's exactly what Jesus says is one of the greatest commandments. And this is where we can find meaning in our work. So just consider about your own job. How does your work facilitate a society where people care for each other? As I said, I used to work in insurance. So what does insurance work mean? Now, some might think it's just, you know, overcharging and denying claims. That's all that insurance is. But at the heart of my job, certainly for people who love their cars, was I, provi- I helped provide a sense of peace of mind and also helped... Um, people overcome unnecessary financial hardship in the event of a theft or an accident. So in some respects, it's a way of caring. It's, a way of, it's an expression of love. So rather than being a necessary evil to be avoided, our work is actually an expression of loving our neighbour. I once met a, a young woman who hated her job. And she was really trying to get out of the job as fast as possible. She just couldn't see any purpose or meaning in her work. So I asked her, so what do you do? And she says, well, I work in procurement, so I buy things. I fill orders and pay bills. And then I kept probing and I asked her, so, okay, well, what are these bills for? And she says, well, they're there to pay the invoices that come in. Okay, okay, yeah, at this point, she was not really very inspired. Um, so I kept probing. So why do the invoices come in? Well, because people buy things. And say, so, well, why do they buy things? Well, so that the hospital has the right equipment. And so why does the hospital need the right equipment? So that the people, the hospital can care for people. Now, it took me a while, but I think once she understood that her boring job in procurement actually facilitated the efficient running of a hospital. Once she could see that it had a bigger purpose, I think that she actually saw in some ways that her role did make a difference and it did help to serve others. So in a small way, her boring, frustrating job did love other people. Now, she did actually end up leaving that job not long after that to work in a consulting job. But I still think that we often fail to answer this question well enough because often we're thinking of work in a selfish sense. What am I going to get out of my work? What am I going to be? What am I going to achieve? What am I going to be fulfilled by? What am I going to consume? What am I going to? What sort of reputation am I going to gain? Rather than thinking, well, what is my work for? How does it help people? And I think when we do see my work, how it helps and loves people, then I think we'll gain a greater sense of purpose and meaning in the job that I do. So in the Bible, work is given meaning through the concept of love. We love others through our work, the things we do, and this doesn't have to be paid work. This is a meaning which goes well beyond ourselves because we see ourselves serving others in our work. So that's so we've kind of so we've covered a couple of main points. Thinking the basic meaning of our work, which is to survive. The second meaning, our meaning of our our meaning of our work is to love others. Then the great Stephen Hawking. Then we get to the third point. As I said, the, the second and third points are a bit longer than the first. So um, the third point, which is that's the, um, is thinking about who I am at work. The great Stephen Hawking once says, "Work gives you meaning and purpose, and life is empty without it." So how do you react to that po- that quote? Work gives you meaning and purpose, and life is empty without it. Now, work can indeed give meaning and purpose, as we've just uh, outlined. But the second part of his quote intrigues me. Life is empty without it. So what happens when you retire, when you finish your work? 
What happens when you're sick and you can't do work? Or if your work is in so intensely frustrated by bureaucracy, obstruction or a toxic work environment that it's fruitless? Or what do we, and we see that maybe our work is service and act of love, but sometimes we just maybe just don't feel that so much. Is meaning lost? Now, as I said, we've seen the meaning of work, which is loving others, but work also has meaning because we have meaning. We have meaning not because of what we do or what we achieve, but because of who we are in Christ. And so the, the, the third area of where we can find meaning at work is to ask the question of, well, who am I at work? Uh, so the second question was, what is my work for? The, the third, the, 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 this question is, well, who am I at work? And I think this is actually probably the most crucial issue facing workers today in Melbourne. I think we're often facing an identity crisis. Because when you go to a party or a function, what's the first question that's generally asked? When, someone, you, know, when you introduce yourself, what's generally the first question you say? What do you do? What do you do for work? There we go, perfect. Um, yeah, I'll meet you afterwards. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll be keen to find out. But, but because so often in our world, we tie who we are with what we do. Our identity is what we do. So who are you? Well, I'm a lawyer. I'm an accountant. I'm a, uh, I'm a doctor. I'm just a receptionist. Or I'm just a housewife. So we often tie our identity to what we do, which means that if I have a more prestigious job or if I earn more money, then we're really somebody. Then we'll be really valuable, then we'll be really contributing, then we'll be really meaningful. That's why being at the bottom is so unprestigious, yet being at the top, many people aspire to go to the top. Now, a classic example of this is one of my other all-time favourite films, and this might, again, reveal a bit more about myself and maybe the films that I watch, but, uh, yeah, it's in one of my all-time favourite films, which is um, Legally Blonde. Um, Now, this film exposes how we often draw the wrong conclusions from external appearances, yet a subtle message of the film, like our society, is that you're only a worthwhile person if you achieve great things. Uh, Graham Hooper, in his book, Undivided, shares a story of how a work function, a former senior executive of a large company who just retired, uh, came in and introduced himself with the words, Hi, I'm Bill. I used to be somebody. He was now just a retiree rather than the head of a large company. Author and speaker Pauline Nguyen wrote, Do you know what my definition of career is? My career is who I am and who I want to become. I am constantly working in and on my career. It is who I am and who I want to become. This is common in our world, isn't it? We see ourselves, our self-esteem, our self-worth, our value in what we do. I am what I do. But can our career sustain this weight? Can we really define ourselves by what we do? World famous uh, basketballer Michael Jordan claimed that his self-esteem was tied directly to the game. Without it, he was adrift. He said, who am I? What am I doing? In the years since he retired, Jordan had been trying to find an identity away from the game of basketball. Uh, There's an article which shared that Jordan um, would stare in the mirror, wondering where to turn, and he said, how could I enjoy the next 20 years of my life without so much of this consuming me. He ponders, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? His self-esteem and his identity were tied with his work. His work ended and he's not sure who he is anymore. Even though he achieved, he had a great reputation, there's plenty of money, is he anybody? But the life of the Christian is radically different. Rather than wanting to be somebody, you already are somebody. The Christian's identity is found in Christ. 
this theme is throughout the scriptures, but particularly consider, so if you want to flip to 1 Peter, it's an exhortation in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, <laughs> verse 9. So if you want to, we'll have a, spend a little bit of time in 1 Peter um, now to, as we uh, finish off this evening. <laughs> 1 Peter, but you, um, uh, it says Christians are what? 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So this identity with, with who you are, regardless of your circumstances or performance, comes from our new birth and the living hope, which Peter describes earlier in 1 Peter 1, 3. So Jesus has given this new birth, new, new birth and then we're born again. We have a new, fresh, clean identity in Christ as a part of the people of God. Um. And Peter then goes on to describe them in verse 11. It says, As your um, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. So believers are addressed here as aliens and strangers. Now, an alien means uh, a distance from society and its values. You, it just means that you're different. Uh, I was nine years old and I moved to the UK for a few years with my family. And I remember going to primary school there. One day, my friends at school were calling me an alien. So you're an alien, you're an alien. And I kind of didn't like that. And so I responded by saying, no, I'm not an alien. I, did, I wanted to be like them. But it was true. I was. I, was. I didn't like it. I wanted to be like them, but I was different. I was an Australian living in England. My difference was rooted in my identity as being Australian. Now, there were times when this identity was very helpful, particularly during successful Ashes campaigns. But I was still different. And this is how Christian believers are. We are different different we see ourselves with our new identity in christ before we see ourselves in our vocation and this impacts our self-esteem and our job satisfaction i mean will you be satisfied with yourself if you only reach middle management or you never work for a top tier firm or you never win employee of the year or you never even get a job will you be satisfied with yourself Appreciating our identity in Christ means that whether you're in a grad program at senior management, you work for a top-tier law firm, you work for government, you work for -for not-for-profit, you are part of this chosen people, a royal priesthood, someone belonging to God, and you will always have meaning and significance because of who you are in Christ. I heard a story of a man uh, in Pakistan who, when asked who he was, would respond with, I am a Christian. For him, being a Christian was foremost to who he was, his primary identity. He saw himself as a Christian before anything else. Now, this is liberating because unlike Paul Indeman, we don't need to be frantically trying to create the ultimate career or identity for ourselves to become significant or important because we are already infinitely important in Christ. There's nothing wrong with achievements or success, um, but if you think you're going to be defined by them or find ultimate meaning through them, then you will delude yourself. Viewing ourselves as our work will fail us and ultimately destroy us as it's destroying Michael Jordan, possibly the world's greatest basketball player ever. Christians are different. We're different at the level of who we are. We already have significance and we are valuable and important because of who we are in Christ. And once we, I think, internalize and understand this concept, it will actually transform and revolutionize our life. And the reason I want to spend so much time thinking about identity is because how you see yourself will impact how you live. So Kate Middleton received etiquette lessons before she became Princess Catherine because being royalty changes the way you sit, 
stand, eat meals and get out of a car. By the way, just in case you're interested or you think you're applying, uh, royalty never uses a fork as a scoop and you never hold your glass out for a refill. Apparently that's what you have to do. I'm not sure about chopsticks though, about what the etiquette for that would be. But anyway, but how you see yourself impacts the way you live. Identifying as royalty impacts the way you live. Say, say for example, you say you, you live as a lawyer. This is a lawyer joke, I'm afraid, so I'm sorry about this. This is a bit of a dig at lawyers. But if you primarily see yourself as a lawyer, then how do you live? Well, in some cases, maybe as a lawyer first, you'd be kind of what? Arrogant, opportunistic, overcharging and driving a BMW 5 Series, perhaps? Or as a Christian first? How would a Christian lawyer live? Or a Christian accountant or a Christian engineer? And if we look there in 1 Peter uh, 2, 11 and 12, we live differently. We live as the royalty we are. Remember verse 9, we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a people living for God. Um, and central to this holy difference is abstaining from sinful desires and living such good lives among the pagans. And this will mark us out as different. And we can handle the difference because we're secure in our identity in Christ. Who we are, chosen, loved and holy, belonging to God regardless of what we do or don't do in our work. Now, this can mean that we can't handle work that's not particularly terrific or inspiring. We can handle different seasons of work. We can handle doing less interesting or challenging work because it means that meaning is to be found whatever we do because our ultimate meaning and significance is bound up who we are in Christ. So now I come to my final point, and this is a, it's not a particularly long point as well. Um, the final area of meaning of our work is by recognising ourselves as a missionary uniquely placed to reach my unbelieving colleagues with God, the one who gives ultimate meaning. I think another key purpose of our work, certainly as believers, is that our work creates uh, contexts and opportunities to bring glory to God through our actions and also to share Jesus with those around us. It can give great meaning to our work when I step into that office or that school or hospital tomorrow because I go empowered by the Spirit of God to be an ambassador of Christ in that place. Um, if you look very closely again at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, um, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 2, 12 here encourages us as believers to live as faithful witnesses among the pagans. Now, Peter assumes here, you notice that word he says among, uh, Peter assumes in verse 12 that the believers live within a pagan world, in a non-Christian world. He doesn't say as you remove yourselves from the pagans, he doesn't say as you live by yourself in a monastery, he says among the pagans. Believers dwell inside this world and Peter is encouraging the believers to live exemplary lives among and alongside the pagans. And as I mentioned before, the workplace is, I think, is where the lives of Christian believers intersect with our modern pagan world most naturally. It's where workers spend the most amount of time among unbelievers. It's where we're most visible to the unbelieving world. I'll tell you my greatest regret of my time working in insurance. No, it wasn't actually working in insurance, as I said before. It actually was quite, enjoy and quite enjoyable. The, my greatest regret of my time working in insurance was that I never invested enough in my colleagues. Whilst I worked with them, and I, sometimes I went out to lunch with them, etc., I never really intentionally invested in my colleagues, took going out to lunch um, or getting to know them. 
Uh, unfortunately, that season of life, I spent, I think, far too much time of my time with my Christian friends rather than investing in my work colleagues. Because I think the workplace is a crucial area where we can live differently to our pagan colleagues and we can actually live among them. And so notice here, when we, we live among the, uh, this pagan world, we will see that our behaviour is different. And how will they react? Well, there's two responses. The first one is in verse 12. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. Um, this is an interesting context, particularly in today, when the results of the marriage survey have been released. Uh, are we surprised that Christians are being reviled for opposing same-sex marriage or, or being accused of being bigoted for not accepting marriage equality? Uh, etc. Or accused of being prudish for not going to strip clubs on work trips, which I've heard uh, workers have been accused of, or etc. Are we surprised that this happens? Because this is what we should expect. And then we see that Peter goes on to say that some of the people who initially revile and accuse the believer of wrongdoing, which is the first response, some of these people actually, in the end, are convinced and glorify God. They've been converted. Now, this no doubt comes, and it must come, with proclamation and explanation of the gospel. But part of this conversion is the result of the visible difference God has made in our lives. Now, as I mentioned before, I host a radio show, which is Bigger Questions, which we often will interview a guest about their life uh, and journey as a Christian. And I've noticed a couple of trends. One of the trends is that, as I I'll often ask the guest's testimony, how they came to know Christ, one of the, the things that I've noticed is that not, not exclusively, but often, very more, more often than I would have expected. People who grew up in non-Christian homes, the thing that began their walk towards Christ was seeing the difference Jesus made in a Christian workmate, colleague, friend, or someone that they knew. That it was um, people from non-Christian backgrounds were struck by the difference that Jesus made and the lives of the Christians uh, was substantially different. And that's exactly what 1 Peter is talking about here, living such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong and they actually may see your good deeds. Something is different about you in your workplace, in your university setting, wherever you are, which has led them to, on a journey, to become a believer. So I think a key way of finding meaning in our work is by living missionally there. And living missionally gives profound meaning to the way that I live at work. And it also affects the way we speak at work. Because we actually have opportunity to share about the ultimate thing bigger than ourselves. Whilst our colleagues may uh, portray confident and successful exteriors, I think that at times these are just masks. Masks hiding restlessness, emptiness and loneliness. That though they are chasing and have caught some, some good things, it'll ultimately be like chasing after wind. This is because ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose and ultimate life can only come through the one who is ultimate, the one who is eternal. Famous tennis player Boris Becker once said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player, I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. Similarly, the famous actress Sophia Loren says that she had everything but said that in my life there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill. And this may be how some of our colleagues indeed feel. Successful, healthy, rich, but without inner peace and empty. Yet unlike what Sophia Loren says, this emptiness is not 
impossible to fulfill. We have the eternal word of life. The one who gives eternal water of life that will completely satisfy it. I've met a number of people on bigger questions who had it all but felt something was missing. So we interviewed last year Tracy Trinita, who was a famous Indonesian supermodel who parted with superstars and she had it all, but yet she felt on the inside a terrible emptiness. Something was missing. But she found ultimate meaning, peace and satisfaction and love in Jesus, someone who would accept her regardless of what she'd done. True life well beyond what a successful modelling career, big house, long holiday or fulfilling job could ever give. Jesus can give this because he is eternal. He is ultimate. He was from the beginning. Uh, And he is the greatest thing beyond ourselves. Now, not everyone that we work with will get this. Many are frantically trying to fill their lives with things to stop them thinking or pausing to reflect on the meaninglessness of life under the sun, which we which heard in Ecclesiastes, which I think means that we need to be patient and thoughtfully prompt our colleagues to pause, stop, maybe think about some of the big questions of life. Where am I going? Is there meaning? Is there purpose? And I think we can gently share about how we have found meaning and purpose and eternal life in the one who is eternal. So I think this is an absolute privilege and in many ways I'm jealous of the workers that I work alongside in the city because they get to work with people who aren't Christian. They can share this great news, this good news with those around them. Uh, We are uniquely placed in our workplaces to share this word of life with those that we work alongside and this can be a real engine for purpose and significance for why I'm placed in the company that I'm placed in. I knew a guy a number of years ago who was struggling with his job, really finding it boring and uninspiring, but was having lots and lots of wonderful conversations about Jesus with his colleagues and kind of felt, well, actually, it's, it's worthwhile me sticking around here because I can share my faith with so many people. Um, and this is a real privilege to do this. So to summarise, the, the four things that we've looked at tonight, we have meaning because it pro- work can provide us a means to survive, to put food on the table, to provide us a means to not be dependent on others. We have meaning at work through loving our neighbours, providing a, a way of, <laughs> of serving others. We have meaning at work because we know that we're always valuable and significant, even when my work may seem fruitless or even non-existent. And, but we can also connect others with the ultimate source of meaning in Christ. And this can be a powerful uh, engine for meaning for us in our workplaces that we are uniquely placed as ambassadors of Christ among the pagans who don't know Jesus. So, should I close in a short word of prayer as to, to, and then we can move to a time of questions and stuff? So let me, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that ultimate meaning is found in Christ and that there is a meaning beyond ourselves which will give us uh, meaning and significance in our work. Pray as we reflect on the big questions of who I am at work and what is my work for. Uh, Please help us to be wise in the way we think about our work and who we are there, uh, and that we can see that our work is a method to serve and love others, but also it's a way that we can, through our work and through the way we live there, can bring much glory to you. We pray for opportunities in our workplace to share the great news of this eternal meaning and purpose which has come to us in Christ. Give us opportunities to share that with those around us, uh, those we work with. 
uh, in wisdom and love. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.